so the book of Joel. Can I start with a kind of a, an illustration? It's always good to kind of paint where I'm going in a, in a kind of a broad sense and then kind of um, go into the kind of intricacies. But I, I want to talk to you about uh, a few decades ago, I, I, w- I went to my doctor surgery and I had a very eccentric doctor back then, um, Dr. Tan. It was a Chinese man. And, um, and he was the kind of doctor that always was writing your prescription before you even got in the door. He was already typing. And it's, it just, I don't know whether that was just an assumption he knew um, every patient. But Dr. Tan was an eccentric. But one day I walked in and um, he wasn't typing. He, you know, he you know, was waiting for me. And, and on his book was a book about Jesus. And so not long having been a Christian, I said to Dr. Tan, I said, Are you, do you believe in Jesus? And he looked at me with a smile and he said, ah, I believe in the historical Jesus. I said, what do you mean by the historical Jesus? Well, you know, basically he doesn't really believe all those kind of myths that Jesus was God and, and all the rest of it. He just believed that there was a person who existed and his name was Jesus, and people have pretty much kind of elevated what they thought about him, and have basically, um, you know, have probably bitten off more than they can chew. In that sense, he was, again, as I like to say, he's, he was nothing more than like a Gandhi or a Muhammad, you know, someone who just was a good teacher, who taught us how to be nice people. But that's not how Jesus is presented. I mean, Jesus is not a, you know, is not merely a form of sustenance in that sense. He is the only sustenance. We've been learning this in John. He is the bread of life. He is not a light. He is the light. He is not a way. He is the way. He is not just his own. He's not just his own resurrection, but he is also our resurrection. John establishes these things by saying that, you know, through signs and testimonies, that Jesus is God. And John says that his testimony is true. In college, uh, one, of the, one of the things I found the most interesting in the last, uh, in the last few months was um, learning about the doctrine of God. And, and a lot of what I'm doing here is really kind of um, fulfilling that mandate that I feel laid on my heart to kind of re-establish the whole idea of God, the concept of God. As a society kind of takes on more power, more freedom, it comes at a consequence. And why do people like Dr. Tan um, believe in historical Jesus and not necessarily the whole idea of God? Is that because the more we believe in our own freedom, the more we take away those freedoms from God the more we believe uh, that we are responsible for all things that happen within the earth. We are, um, as as Dr. Reverend Mike Hovey would say, we are de-godding God. Because we look to ourselves more than we would look to him. In our text today, we're going to be examining this dialogue with God, which hopefully will open up this whole idea of why we want to de-God God. And one of the reasons why studying John's Gospel, which has a heavy emphasis on, on the deity of Christ, is such an important thing. So as much as we are doing Job today, we are hopefully um, 
positioning ourselves to get back into our studies on John and realizing why is it important to place divinity and godhood back in the life of Christ. Job is a book about theodicy. Theodicy is just a fancy word to me about how, uh, how, we, how do we deal with evil in the world. Um, today, atheists such as Dawkins um, would say that the theodicy issue is one of the main reasons why he's an atheist. I mean, he, in that sense, he, though he does not um, have absolute knowledge of all the things that are happening in the world, he believes that the fact that there is evil and that there is an all-powerful God who allows these evils to happen um, is the proof that there is no God. And if there is a God such as this, then he's not the good God that we think he is. But he is actually a devil. What kind of God that's all-powerful allow people to starve, allow millions of people to die um, with things that he could stop in a heartbeat? So the theodicy issue is... <laughs> is a big stumbling block, no doubt not just for atheists today, but sometimes probably for us. At some point, we are going to scratch our head and doubt whether God is good. Again, this is the reason why Job is an important book for us to study. Let me go through some of the issues as we kind of break this down as to why um, theodicy issues become, become big issues for us. As, um, and I think that there are some concepts, I don't want to go through all of it, which we, time, we tend to misunderstand. So, for example, justice is one of those things. We have, a, we have a limited understanding of what justice is. For us, justice is a very personal thing. For example, we are more aware of injustice from our own perspective. Justice from God's perspective is personal to him as well. But it's not limited to the scope that we tend to have. The reason why our version of justice versus God's version of justice tends to be quite limited is because, the second concept, is because God is eternal. The eternal God's nature is one that means he possesses all of his life at once, without sequence. So where we might see a delay in justice, we see a God, from God's perspective, those things have already been dealt with. This is what we get from the concept of we are more than conquerors. We are already seated with Christ. These are things that Paul says to us in order to say that the eternal God has already dealt with all of these things and everything is okay. The next concept is temporality. We are temporal creatures. We, we experience our, our lives one moment at a time. We go through life... Um, in a sense, not really knowing what is around the corner. And temporality and eternity are not compatible in that sense of the perspective of being a temporal being is very, very limited. And so when we go back to the whole idea of justice, eternity, and temporality, we start to, sit, we start to unpack the whole idea of why do we have these theodicy issues? And how, when we have a better understanding of these terms, we might actually begin to understand who God is and that there are no issues, as people tend to put out. But let me give you an overview, before we go into our text and read it, of Job. For those of you who have never read the book of Job, 
It's about a man who um, is a good man. He's described as a righteous man. Obviously, we don't believe he's a sinless righteous man, but he is believed to be a righteous man in that he worships God and he trusts in God. The scene begins with an accuser. You know, it's not necessarily Satan, as we know Satan, um, but he is an accuser nonetheless, and Satan fits that role. And he comes before God and he says, "Um, I've been going to and fro. God asked him, where have you been? He said, I've been going to and fro in the whole world. He said, what have you seen? And he says, well, you know, I've seen this and that. And he said, have you considered my servant Job? The accuser basically turns to God and says, well, look, (laughs) it's funny that you should mention Job because he basically is a man who's protected by you. You He has a hedge around him. It's just basically a way of saying that you protect him. And the only reason why he serves you is because you basically get good stuff from him. He gets good stuff from you. And God says, oh, I sense a challenge in this. And I says, oh, okay, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove that hedge. I'm going to give you the opportunity to test Job to see whether he actually really loves me more than he loves the things that I've given him. And so within um, the course of a few days, Job loses his wealth, his family, and then eventually his health. And Job sits in a pile of ashes and he mourns his loss. Eventually, his three friends come to him. And after a week's worth of silence, you know, they look at this guy who was one of the wealthiest men in his, probably, in, in his region, um, living in a pile of ashes. They, they basically are silent for seven days. And they sit down there. And then after seven days they begin to talk, and their big theological debate basically ensues over the pretty much 36 chapters. To and in throwing with accusations that Job has been found out. That, in a sense, he has suffered because he has done something wrong. Job Um, So in a sense, you can sum up pretty much all of their responses as, Job, you need to repent because God has found you out. Secret sins in his life. Job's response to his criticisms can be summed up as this. If I had God, if I could get God in court, I would plead my case before him and he would vindicate me. It's 36 chapters in a nutshell. I hope you appreciate it. (laughs) But finally, God shows up. Chapter 38. And he adds his weight to this this great theological debate. And it is God's response where the theology proper starts to happen. When God speaks for himself, that's theology. When we tend to have our own ideas, it's just religion. Just religion. My ideas. But God is theology proper. So in the midst of his response, God addressed God's and his Job and he says this. So I would like you to turn to Job 40. And we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 14. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Um, 
And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account, and what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Mm-hmm. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, delve into this text, these are difficult issues, Lord. and No doubt maybe there are issues within our own lives where um, even those amongst us will be having difficult circumstances to deal with. Maybe there are things in our own lives where we uh, have been uncomfortable and we have um, not quite understood your plan. But Lord, help us to deal with this uh, uncomfortable issue of theodicy. How do we believe that you are good when bad things happen in this world? Lord, help us to put aside our own fears our own religious ideas, dear Lord, and help us at this moment to just be open to what your text reveals about you. Help us, Lord God, to put our religious ideas aside and let theology proper guide our, li- guide our lives and be a light to us, Lord, today. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your truth. Help me, Lord, and help us all to respond to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things um, I think I have to deal with again, you know, is, um, is, what, is what I guess is today is called cognitive dissonance. Now, another big word, but I will break that down. Um, but let me just first, uh, for those of you taking notes, um, you don't have to turn here. Isaiah 45, 7, for example, says this. I am the one who forms light and creates darkness. The one who brings about peace and creates calamity. I am the Lord who accomplishes all these things. You know, how do we deal with a text like that? Yeah. The context of Isaiah is that the nation of Israel was failing to serve him properly. And God said without his judgment, without his chastisement, they would think they were actually in the right to do that. You know, again, um, Hebrews 12 tells us, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. But cognitive dissonance is, is, is this whole idea of, in our minds, when we embrace things in the text that we don't like, we, we tend to just phase it out. We tend to say, well, that doesn't fit within the theological view that I have, and I just push it to the side, and, and I don't deal with it. And 
we don't necessarily have the whole counsel of God in our lives. We tend to have our key texts that we like and we tend to avoid certain books or tend to avoid certain passages because they do not sit well with the way that we want to believe about, believe about Christianity, believe about God. But we need to deal with the difficult texts. We need to be able to look at these texts and say, what does this actually mean? to me and where do I need to change does God really allow us to suffer as part of his grand plan if God is not aware of your suffering and is not in some ways allowing your suffering then God is not sovereign as we like to believe he is it's just not possible Either he is the Almighty or he is not. And we must not make the mistake and assume that the blessed life conforms to the norms of our current society. You know, it's not what we see on MTV, it's not what we see within um, homes and gardens. Whatever show that we might say, this is what living is. This is probably the mistake of some of the Pentecostal movement and um, the prosperity gospel who has seen that the blessed life looks a particular way. Can I quote Anderson here? And he says that God's goodness lies beyond justice. We shouldn't simplify God's goodness to be like our own. We have our own ideas of what is good, and no doubt, you know, especially if you're parents, you have the whole idea of making sure our children experience good things and are not necessarily exposed to the harsh realities of life. From a temporal standpoint, we, have, um, we cannot allow ourselves to be caught up with a temporal view of what God's justice looks like because we have an ultimate judgment to come. And it only appears that God's judgment is out of sync with reality. It only appears so. The text itself, this particular text, um, Anderson, and I'm inclined to, to agree with him, believes that this is the heart of the theology of this book. In other words, what it actually, when we look at what Job is trying to teach, these 14 verses pretty much encapsulates God's point of view. This is the, this is the purpose of the book. Job, 1, Job, verses, Job 40 verses 1 to 5. Um, begins with a prelude. Does, God, does Job know better than God as to instruct him? This is the way I'm going to sum up verses 1 to 5. Let me just preface this with what he's dealt with in, verse, in, in chapters 38 and 39. God has questioned Job about the created world. I mean, when you look at... Um, 
chapters 38 and 39, it's pretty much a lot of questions of where were you? How did, this, how did I do this? How were all these things done? Basically, they're all questions that Job can't answer. In a sense, his silence in these you know, initial verses is pretty much like, I don't know. What is God doing? Job is speechless. Because his argument is this. Job's lack of understanding of the moral, of the created order of the world is to be reflected his lack of understanding of the moral order of the world. If he doesn't know how the world is created, how does he really know how morality really works? So, the person who cannot answer, how did I do this? How did I create the circumference of the world? How did I make the mountains and the, 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 the animals and the creatures? How can the person who doesn't know these things tell me what am I, what am I doing in the moral world? The point is that God's mastery over the created order makes him master also over the moral order. Can I present an illustration here? Um, a number of years ago, I, I was training as a designer, as an artist and a designer, and uh, one of the things my lecturer had always said to me was that um, you're going into a world where everyone is a designer. And it's true. You know I mean, you're there as the trained professional and you go and you do a job and pretty much everybody's telling you this is how it really ought to be. From a personal perspective, we kind of know what we like. And in a sense, my, my role as a designer is quite mute because I'm pretty much doing what you want me to do. You've only hired me as a hand and not necessarily as a mind. You know, I've, I remember a friend of mine who used to design logos and... Um, he was in the, you know, we were looking through his uh, one particular job and, and somebody wanted to redesign their logo and they'd pretty much gone all around the houses to end up back with the same logo again. <laughs> and he showed me the design process and he showed, and then, you know, and basically it was just like smooth the edges of the old one. <laughs> Why do I say this? We tend to think up past ourselves of as experts in other people's fields. You know, I mean, I like to say that as a designer, um, we, we, we feel quite great freedom to say, I know what I'm doing, but um, we're not necessarily as, as quick to challenge the plumber <laughs> or the electrician as to how things ought to be done. There's some trades we, we kind of admit defeat. The IT guy as well. <laughs> but we present ourselves as experts in God's field. Because from a personal point of view, morality is very personal to us. We know how things ought to be. And so for that reason, we tend to go, well, it ought to be like this. A lot of our conversations, no doubt, float around this whole idea of oughtness. 
It ought to be like this. It's just common sense. This is what we ought to be doing. That person's out of order. But what God is going to show to Job, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You know, in that sense, you cannot be an expert in one area and then prove ignorance in another area and then say you are right. The fact that he has already been proven that he cannot be the master of all the creative world means he cannot be the master of the moral order as well and why things happen the way that they do. Verses 7, verse 7, like in chapter 38, God now gives Job another opportunity, another ultimatum to dress himself like a man. In other words, okay, we're, gonna, we're having this conversation, get yourself ready to answer. You're having your day in court. Job has pleaded throughout the whole context of these dialogues with him and his friends that if he could get God in court, he would be proved right. And he's having his day in court with God, and he is not having a word to say. He is dumbfounded. Verse 8 is interesting, isn't it? Would you put me in the wrong in order to make yourself look right? I paraphrase. This verse highlights the human plight to be self-justified even at the cost of putting God in the wrong. When we say that we are unfairly treated, what we are really saying is that I deserve better, not just from our antagonists, but also from God. We complain because we assume that the perspective from which we see things reveal all that, that we need to know. From my little perspective, this is not going right. What is missing is that the, the whole creature creates a distinction. And this is what Job, and particularly God in verses 38 to 40, is highlighting. You are a creature. Your ability to dictate morality is incredibly limited. This is not just a mistake that the atheists make. This is a mistake that we make as well. Sometimes we don't just scratch ourselves and scratch our heads and say, why does this happen? Pretty much say, God, this is, this is not right. I mean, when you look at especially the Psalms, um, and, and some of the Psalms there, shows that sometimes these things are good to say because at least they're honest. But one of the things you find in the Psalms, that, you know, especially the Davidic Psalms, David always comes back down to the earth and he says, then I saw, then I understood who God was. Without an understanding of the sovereignty of God, you will continue to ask why, and in a sense, over years, you'll build up this whole idea of, you know, well, me and God are not on that speaking terms. Me and, God are, me and God have our issues. We've seen it. 
I've seen it amongst a lot of people I know. Terrible things happen in their life and they struggle to get over it. And that enmity between God grows. Verse 9 shows us that the logic of God's question means that he, that means this. He who has the power has the moral authority. What does that mean? This doesn't mean what the old adage of the Greeks might makes right. That's how humans try to fix problems. We try to push people, bully people into doing the right things. We punish them to do the right things. This is not what God is is saying. He has the power to do all these things and only God can transmute, that is, turn evil things into good things. Again, Romans 9, was 8.28, isn't it? All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Only God can turn a terrible situation into a blessed situation. Under our power, under our control, it will be hideous. We might have the justice on the surface, but it will come at a cost. You know, you know let me give another illustration here. I mean, I, 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 when I got to this stage, I kind of thought of a song, the Curtis Blow song, you know, If I Rule the World. You know? And, but I, I, I think of some of the situations I have. When I think of, um, you know, and put this into the context of James 1.20, you know, the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. And I think of how my idea, my inflated opinion of my self-respect basically puts people, I mean, I'm brutal. And no doubt you find yourselves too. I mean, there's no, there's no eye for an eye. I mean, at least, at least, at least within the, the, you know, and people despise that whole eye for the eye thing because it's, oh, well, it's terrible, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got to give people a fair chance and da 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 and give them another break and all the rest of it. But in our minds, I mean, we are disproportionate. I mean, a cut, I mean, it's not like we, you know, we get cut up in the road. It's not like, well, I'm going to cut them back. I'm going to find their family. Anyone who knows them. And I'll be honest with you, we laugh, but I have, you know, and, and then they will know. <laughs> then they will know. And this is, the, this is the challenge that God is laying at Job. He's like, he said, if you rule the world, it would be brutal. It wouldn't be justice. It would just be rough, disproportionate. This is what verses 10 and 14 does, you know. Can you do this thing for yourself? Um, the Jewish, sometimes it's good to understand the history of a culture as to what Paul, you know, what is God actually getting at here. And, um, and this is why we need to understand that there is only one real judge. One true judge. We have many people that sit on courts, and sit in places and sit in 
with the ability to make judgments, but there is only one true judge. Because the Jewish understanding of a judge was this, was that not only did they make, when they make a judgment, they were, they were culpable for it. They were also culpable to actually make sure that that judgment was carried out. In other words, if somebody had to pay restitution to somebody else, they had to make sure that was actually done. If somebody uh, was sentenced to death, they had to make sure that sentence was carried out. That was a Jewish understanding of a judge. In other words, the person who judges better make sure they're able to do what they command. And this is what, jo- this is what, the, this is what God is saying. He's saying that I am the only person who can really do that. In a sense where nothing come, escapes my sight. Nothing escapes me. And I can make sure it happens. The Job narrative reveals that God is far from indifferent from human suffering. What it does also say is that the way of human suffering is as complex as the way of the created order. In a sense, when you look at those questions in 38 and 39, the complexity of creation itself, the whole idea of how does this, how does this terrible deed make sense? How does it make things good? Our inability to understand the, 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 the physics of this world, the true physics of this world, not the stuff that they play with in Cambridge, the true physics of how does this actually come together, the complexity of that. The fact that when you, when, you, when, you, when you look at the atom and we say, look, we've mastered and we've actually discovered what the atom is, only to find out on the subatomic level that you have things that do not obey the laws of nature. That an atom is made up of things that disappear and appear randomly. How does an atom survive? How does it sustain itself? The physicists do not know. Quantum physics. Things in flux. So just when people think they've conquered the the, the knowledge of the physical universe, they find out that they're ignorant again. That's that's, that's basically that they're ignorant again. The fact that we do not have that knowledge tells us how can we play God in the moral world? How can we say that the starving people the deaths that we see happening do not actually amount to a good and perfect plan. We only see the suffering today. We do not see the big issue. We do not see the complex plan because we just don't understand it. The truth is, is that, you know, if we really wanted to fix it, we should be able to fix it. And no doubt, no, many atheists have said, well, you know, let's get on the humanist agenda and let's try to get out there and try to actually make a better world. Stop, let's stop this religious thing and actually start to, again, take that responsibility upon ourselves. The weirdest thing is that we still can't get over ourselves. We still think that, you know, how can we have, um, you know, cheap goods to wear and not have sweatshops? How can we have the life that we want uh, and at the same time 
share the wealth with other people that they'll have less. We can't get over ourselves. Because we still want what we want. And we want the world to be better. (laughs) So in that sense, our own approach to trying to resolve the world's problems are no better. What Job is learning is that God ought to be trusted. We do what we can, and the rest we leave to God. We also know that the undulation of life, undulation is, again, another big word, but it just basically means the ups and downs of life, can lead us to false securities. You know, I've been in, you know, I've been in places where I've, I felt this joy will never end. <laughs> no doubt we've all been there. <laughs> Especially just coming back from holiday. <laughs> Only to find ourselves, it gives place to sorrow. Sometimes you just wake up and you just don't, you just don't feel great anymore. Not necessarily because anything's happened. Just, ah, another day. But we've also been in sorrows that we thought would never end. Only to see that give way to joy, to joy again. We laugh again. Things are well. One day we wake up and it doesn't impact our lives the way it did before. In that sense, life changes. And we tend to try to maximize the joy. How do we keep the joy going? In a sense, the sorrows that kind of in, that create interludes in our lives are, are, are like, basically they kind of remind us and they keep us hopeful. In other words, it keeps us looking forward to the time where there will be an ultimate peace and an ultimate judgment. In that sense, that undulation makes us feel comfortable but not too comfortable. Because we see that the joyous times will come and they will go. The sad times will come and they will go. And it keeps us hopeful. Because we will say, when will these sorrows all end? When will joy be eternal? Revelation 21, 3-4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. That's our hope. In a sense, we can enjoy the life that we have and we ought to live it well. But pain reminds us to live for the world to come. Pain reminds us that God will be the ultimate judge. Have you been in a court case where you haven't received the justice you believed you deserve? There is a judge. Wait on him. 
as I've said, so much of what I'm doing is trying to bring us into the whole line of what we've been going through in John. What does it mean to believe in God, to believe that Jesus is God? And uh, next week we go back into John 9. You know, John 9, I have to say, is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. In fact, probably the favorite chapter of the Bible. I love it because it begins with a theodicy question. In chapter 2, it's in verse 2 of chapter 9, it says this. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, looking at this blind man, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind, this man or his parents? You see that even the disciples had these kind of, you know, if something terrible happens to you, you're, you're out of God's will. Unable to see that God's grace is present within suffering. And it's in present in suffering because he is sovereignly in control of all the things that are happening in your life. The disciples didn't know what was going to happen and um, Pastor E is going to expand on that. So I ain't going to trample on that. But it begins with a theodicy question. Is this man guilty of sin? Anderson says this about the whole idea of guilt and punishment. He says, The categories of guilt and punishment, true and terrible though they are, can only view human suffering as a consequence to sin, not as an occasion for grace. It's a great quote, I think. When something happens, you know, I mean, you know, my wife and I, we jest about these things when, you know, when we're, we're less than pleased with each other and something happens to us, we tend to, to say, ah, oh, sin in your life. <laughs> we do it jokingly, but, you know, to some extent we believe that. When we see something terrible, we kind of like think, hmm, I wonder what you've done wrong. <laughs> we have to be mindful, though, Suffering provides us with momentum for grace. Momentum for grace. Who will appreciate sight more than the person who was born blind? Who will appreciate food more than those who have hungered? Who will appreciate life more than those who have given their lives for others? And it said suffering reveals and gives way to our understanding that brings clear and joyous appreciation. You know? What have you learned to appreciate because you've lacked it in recent years or even recent weeks? You know, if you're like myself, if you, you know, when, you, uh, when you've gone through a cold and you, and you can breathe that fresh air again in your own and, and actually feel the fibers of your nose being lit with fresh air, semi-fresh air. It's amazing, isn't it? But you've appreciated that because you've been bunged up for a week. 
That's what I'm saying. Momentum for grace. Lord, it's great to breathe. It's great. But this shows us something wonderful about Christ, isn't it? It shows us how the suffering of the cross brings grace to all who are called. In that sense, the suffering of the cross reveals how good things come out of bad situations. You know, the great Isaiah chapter says, chastisement of, his, of our peace was laid upon him. For his, by his stripes we are healed. You see those, those contrasts there? Something terrible. Stripes. Healed. Chastisement. Peace. That's the wisdom of God. He says that the, that the foolishness of the cross, that, that people believe that it's foolish because it says that, that that's not victory. That's defeat. Not in my Bible. But John's gospel goes on. Again, in John 15, 18 to 25, it says that, that suffering will also become our, his suffering will also become our suffering. Jesus promises suffering in our lives because of his life. Again, um, Matthew 6 is a great chapter to read about what it means to suffer and about the difference between those who experience good in this life thinking that they have everything and those who don't who actually have everything. I can recommend to you again another book, Lewis's um, The Problem of Pain, a great book. A great book talking about what suffering is like and why it is actually helpful. Finally, can I commend to you, to those who are having a tough time right now, um, Psalm 27. It has been no small comfort to me in, 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 in recent years, in long gone years as well. I like these particular words. It ends with, in um, the last two verses say this. It says, where would I be if I did not believe I would experience the Lord's favor in the land of the living? Rely on God or wait on God. Be strong and confident and rely, wait on God, on the Lord. Psalm 27, 13 to 14. Great words. You know, I would have, you know, there's another version that says, I would have fainted if I had not believed that I would see God's goodness in the land of the living. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of God do you believe in? Do you believe in a free God who's sovereign? And he's good and knows how to run the moral order of this world as much as he knows how to create it? Or do you want a genie? Do you want to have access to ultimate power? Ultimate power under our control. That's what a genie is, isn't it? You have a being in front of you who has all this power to create any wish and to make our lives the way that we want it to be. 
And all we have to do is just give the command and then all that ultimate power is really ours. Sometimes we can actually think God's like that, can't we? That we just do the formula and God will have to do what we say. I live the right life and then, you know, if something terrible happens to me, then I can say, but God, you owe me. Can I quote Lewis? Those of you who have um, ever read um, The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, I mean, one of the things that Lewis has always um, maintained is that his, um, his Narnia stories are not allegories. Really what they are, they're, they're a way of looking at a, a world very different from our own and saying, what would salvation, if I understand salvation in this world and how Christ has revealed himself in this world, what would that look like in a world that was completely different to ours, where there was a fall? I like this one. At the beginning, um, where the, ki- the, the, the kids come into the, the land of Narnia and they meet Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver says this when they ask about Aslan. He said, safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. At the end, when Aslan goes away, he makes this next quote. He'll be coming and going, he said. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll, drop, he'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know. Not a tame lion. Good theology promotes the freedom of God to rule as he sees fit. He is not tame. We do not tame God. We do not manipulate God. When we believe in the sovereignty of God, we realize that the world is in safe hands. The created order is in safe hands. He may seem to disappear, but that's not an evidence that he's not in control. As we delve back into to John and um, as we consider the, the message of Job, I want us to be very mindful of what type of God we believe in. Build up your doctrine of God. Let him tell you who he is. Don't assume. Read. Read about who God is and his freedom. Can I invite the worship team to come up as we kind of conclude in a prayer? God, you are the You are the Lord of all creation. You are the God who has uh, allowed a fallen world to continue. And Father, all the confusion that might bring about your sovereignty, about your goodness, Lord, we pray, Father, today, 
Uh, Though we we may not have all of our issues settled, Lord God, that today you will build our trust in you, our confidence in you, Lord. It says that, you know, Abraham believed and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. He just believed that God was good. He believed that even if he sacrificed the very son that he loved, the only son that he had, the son of promise, that, that the goodness of God would resurrect him and bring him to life again. Lord, help us to have faith like that. Help us to have the kind of faith, dear Lord, that trusts in your goodness implicitly. Even when reason seems to, 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 to put a blockage up, to, to says, this is foolishness. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Help us to consider our wisdom as naught as we consider the wisdom of you, Lord, even the wisdom of the cross. Thank you for so great a salvation that came through the suffering of yourself in the person of the Son. We thank you there, Lord God, that that reveals the greatest grace of all, the salvation of of us all. You know, help us to, again, enjoy our own sufferings that Christ promised will come. Help us, as it were, to despise the shame But Lord, look forward to the glory that will be revealed in us when you make all things right. Lord, help us not to be hasty in our judgments. Help grace there, Lord God. Help us to try and see there, Lord, the grace in our situations, our trying moments, Lord. Even the trying people in our lives. Lord, you are amazing. And Job reveals how amazing you are. So, Lord, help us to humble ourselves as we consider your truth today. And let your spirit guide us, O Lord, to take this into our own lives, O Lord, and make good use of it. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.